Good morning. I hope everybody's well. Um, let's open with prayer. I know that Lanta just prayed, but let's just pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning full of our stuff, as we always are. It's always about us. But we come this morning to worship. So we ask Holy Spirit to help us empty, put down our things, and to listen and for you to come and talk to us in an area in our lives that we're holding just to ourselves. Nudge us forward, would you please? And I ask, Lord, that you take my empty words that are just noise and you make them something powerful that will transform. In Jesus' name, who makes all things possible. Amen. 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 <sighs> Micah. What does the Lord require of us to walk humbly with our God? Humility. I mean, what does it really mean? It's not a, a popular word, I think, in our society. And I think in Webster's Dictionary, it's a little different than the Bible's definition. I believe the Bible's definition is to know who we truly are before God. It's not to think that we're bad at everything, that we can't do anything, that we're nothing, that you know, we're stupid. That's not humility. But to know that all the good things in our lives come from God, that we don't take credit for it. And to deeply understand that we need help to navigate our lives. Because truly we live in a deep, dark fog. We don't know what's around the corner. We have maybe 10 feet vision. We never know. We're always blindsided by the next thing. Have you ever tried to drive in the dark without lights? It's utter lunacy, right? Yet that's what we do. That's what our lives are like. We never know what's coming, and we keep on driving. A smart man stops for directions. Well, especially if they're men, they're really smart with these stuff for directions. But a humble man, knows that even the directions are sometimes hard to follow. And he moves over in the passenger seat and lets the one who sees all drive. Humility. Always to choose God's way of navigating life. We've been talking about that in life group, to choose the right way. When we have, you know, and, and God has created us in a way that we can make choices. So today the story of Balaam comes up. He portrays the profound truth about humility clearer than any other story I can think of in the Bible. It's a funny story. You can laugh out loud kind of story. Because we hear it in hindsight. We have all the facts. Both what's happening right now in the physical realm, but we also know what's happening in the spiritual realm. And when you see all that, I mean, Balaam looks like a fool. He's egotistical. He's money hungry trying without success to do things over and over his way. Balaam the prophet. We find his story in Numbers 22. A little background. By the time we reach Balaam, um, Israel is kind of almost towards the end of their 40 years in the desert. Okay? Um, Moses' siblings have died. Miriam died, sister that basically saved him when he was a baby. Aaron, the high priest, has died. Um, 
Joshua is just about to be elected as the next leader, Moses will die. And they start, to, start going on the move. They start to conquer the lands around. Israel's ready, and they conquer, they basically annihilate the Canaanites and the Amorites. And fear begins to overwhelm the tribal kings around. I mean, I can imagine for 40 years, they see this group of people. It's about 600,000 plus soldiers, plus women and children, just kind of moving around. It looks to the outside world aimlessly. And then all of a sudden, now they're on the move. So they land, they settle in the plains of Moab, opposite the city of Jericho. Now we know the story of Jericho later on, but right now this whole encampment has landed in Moab. And the Moabites, little background, the Moabites, if you remember, are the descendants of Lot. Oh, you remember Lot, that rascal? Abraham's nephew, remember that guy? There's all sorts of stories about him, okay? But anyway, in Deuteronomy, God has commanded Moses not to harass Moab, not to provoke them to war, because they're Lot's people. I mean, this is what I find amazing about God's heart, how tender he is. Okay, to Lot. Of all people, to be, to be honorable and to be faithful to is Lot. But yet God has told them that. Israel, you are not going to touch Moab, because they're descendants of Lot. And I don't believe the Moabite king, when he sees these, this whole group encamped on his, on his land, is afraid that they're going to annihilate him. Because I think I'm pretty sure he knows that they're related somehow far away. Israel is from Abraham, and, and the, uh, the Moabites are from Lot. So I don't think he's afraid of that. But he is sick to his stomach that the Jews are going to consume everything in sight. Well, of course. There's water rights. It's part desert, right? He complains to the Midianite king. This horde will lick up all that is around us as the ox licks up the grass of the field. That's pretty, yeah. Something had to be done. And King Balak knows a prophet, a powerful prophet, back in his home area, his home region. And he's very powerful. This prophet's called Balaam. This is our guy. He was a well-known diviner or seer with a reputation for effectively cursing nations. His powers came from below. He was connected, but not to the God of Israel. Seers were basically power brokers, if you will. Some were frauds, but Balaam's power was real. And we're going to start strengthening the story, but you know, I, as I'm trying to tell the story, I'm having problems with King Balak. I keep calling him Barak, okay? So, and, and Balak and Balaam are similar, right? So for because sometimes I'm slow, and I'm going to call him the king. Okay, his name is Balak. But for our purposes, I'm going to call him the king, so I don't confuse him with Barak, and I don't confuse Barak, Balaam, with Balak. Okay, it's too confusing for me. So get, get it? Okay, so the king. So the king sends a message to Balaam the prophet through his elders, who arrive at Balaam's door with a sizable fee for divination. Please, they tell him, a people have come out of Egypt and they cover up the surface of my land and they are living opposite me. Come and curse them because they are too mighty for me to handle. Perhaps if you curse them, I'll be able to drive them out of the land because I know who you curse is cursed and who you bless is blessed. Balaam tells them to spend the night so he can tell them in the morning what the Lord has spoken to him. So the leaders of Moab spend the night. 
During the night, God asks Balaam, who are these men with you? Now, God is asking Balaam who these men are. Doesn't that remind you kind of of Jesus? Jesus does that kind of stuff, right? He just is like, what, what are you talking about? You know what they're thinking. God, you know who these men are. He already knows the answer, but I think God is getting at something here. Balaam responds, well, the king of Moab has sent word to me. There are people who have come out of Egypt, and they cover his land. And the king wants me to curse them, so perhaps he can fight against them and drive them out. Now, this conversation with God gives us a hint that the prophet Balaam doesn't really know much about the people of God and the Jewish history. Numbers 22, 12 to 13 says, God said to Balaam, do not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. So Balaam arose in the morning and said to the king's leaders, go back to your land, for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. Now, pay attention to this. The screen is up, right? Yes, pay attention to this. <laughs> it's not exactly what God has told him. God has told him that I have blessed them, and you're not going to curse them, right? But what does the prophet say? He says to the elders, I can't go. God is not letting me go. It's not the whole story. What I get from Balaam is that he really wants to go with the elders. But God's just not letting him. There's a lot of money to be had. What do we do when we want something really badly and God seems to be saying, no? Do we look for loopholes? Exceptions? Do we begin to, th begin to think that God is an unjust, miserly God? Do we start rationalizing in half-truths? You know, Satan is the expert of half-truths. The leaders leave and return to the king, reporting to him simply, even less, simply that the prophet refuses to come. Understandably, the king is not easily dissuaded because these people have camped right in front of him. So he sends leaders, but this time more leaders, this time more distinguished leaders. He, he knows Balaam the prophet's reputation. He's a lover of money and prestige, and the king is appealing to Balaam's avarice. So the elders come again, they arrive, this time more fancy, and they beg, and they knock on the door and they say, we beg you, let nothing hinder you from coming to the king, for he will indeed honor you richly and will do whatever you say. Please come and curse these people. Now on the surface, it seems that Balaam gives the correct answer. Numbers 22, 18 to 19. He responds, and he seems so righteous the way he says it, huh? Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not do anything, either small or great, contrary to the command of the Lord my God. Now please, you stay here tonight, and I will find out what else the Lord will speak to me. What's up with that? What else the Lord will speak to me? How often do we do the exact same thing? We're pretty sure what the Bible says on the subject, but we don't like it. I mean, it doesn't suit us. So we do research. There's a lot of other verses, perhaps. We'll find some verse that will tell us something a little different. Perhaps an other expert can tell us what we want to hear. Wait, Balaam wants to go so badly. What does he think God is going to say? I mean, honestly, God said no. But lo and behold, it appears that God has changed his mind. 
God comes to Balaam in the middle of the night the second time, and he says, well, if the men have come to call you, rise up and go with them. But only the word of the Lord you're going to speak. What? I wonder if the prophet seriously thought he had persuaded God, the living God, to curse the Jews. So Balaam gets up early, saddles up his donkey, and goes with the leaders of Moab. Numbers 22 tells us that God gets angry. Now that's a serious statement, huh? Because in the Bible it says God is slow to anger. Right? I don't know if you know anybody in your life who hardly ever gets angry. But when they do get angry, you need to like leave. You need to get out of the way. Yikes. Our first reaction should be, wait a minute. Didn't God tell Balaam he could go? Well, why is he angry? Well, how capricious. But I'm going to speak to the parents here, or children who remember how you are and how you behave. Have you ever been badgered by your kids to let them do something that you have specifically told them you don't want them to do? You've patiently told them, explained it to them. But it's like they're not listening. They ignore your explanation. Matter of fact, they tell all their friends that you're unfair, you're so strict, right? You can't wait to leave home. And they come again, and they nag you. So you give in, as a parent, and you tell your daughter, your son, okay, you can go. And you watch them, with glee, leave the house. But the very idea gets you, right? That they've just ignored everything. And it burns you up. Well, I think this is how God is feeling with our prophet Balaam. So God sends an angel to block Balaam's way. And here the funny part starts. Balaam is riding his donkey with two servants, and the, el and the other elders, but with two servants. And the donkey sees the angel with a drawn sword in his hand, and he gets afraid, the donkey. And so he turns from this big road, and he goes into a field. <laughs> well, Balaam is upset. Okay, here's the powerful seer who's being paid prestige and whatever to go and visit the king, and he can't even control his donkey, and he's angry. So he starts to beat the donkey, okay? <laughs> And now the donkey is in this field on this narrow path with walls over here and walls over here. And the angel again is standing there with a sword. But it seems like the only person who sees the angel is the donkey. None of the people see the angel. So the donkey, Balaam is upset, hitting the donkey. So the donkey is trying to get out of the angel's way. And he squeezes against the wall. And as he squeezes against the wall, Balaam the prophet's ankle gets crushed against the wall. And he's furious. And he starts beating the donkey again to turn around and let's get back on the road where everybody else is. But the angel has blocked everything. There's no way for the donkey to turn. So what does the donkey do? He sits down with Balaam on top of him. Do you see the irony in this? The seer, the prophet who divines the future, totally blind to what is right in front of him. His eyes are blinded with covetousness and ambition. He's dazzled with the rewards of divination. How blind are we to things going on right under our noses? Everything looks perfectly normal, but in the spirit world, all hell is breaking loose, literally. Balaam is furious, and again, he's sitting on the donkey, the donkey's on the ground, he strikes the donkey. And now the Lord, God, he has a sense of humor. He opens the donkey's mouth, and she begins to speak. And the strangest thing is, that Balaam doesn't think it's strange. 
So the donkey says, what have I done to you all these years that you've struck me three times? And Balaam says, what have you done? Because of you, you've made a mockery of me in front of these people. If I had a sword, I would kill you right now. And the donkey responds, am I not your donkey on which you've ridden all your life? Have I ever been accustomed to do this before? Well, no, the Balaam responds. And then God opens his eyes, the prophet's eyes, and he sees the angel with a drawn sword in his hand. And then all of a sudden, the tune changes. The angel says, why have you struck your donkey three times? Behold, I have come out as an adversary because your way was contrary to me. But the donkey saw me and turned aside. If she hadn't turned aside, I would surely have killed you, Balaam, and let the donkey live. Now let's look at Balaam's response to the angel. Because though we laugh at Balaam, I hope that we see ourselves in there too. Numbers 22:34 says, Balaam says to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned. For I did not know that you were standing in the way against me. Now then, if it's displeasing to you, I'll turn back. Do you see how Balaam is always kind of right there on the edge? Almost says the right thing, but then there's something that goes over here. Do you see this thing? If I'm displeasing? Really? An angel of the Lord is holding a sword because he doesn't want you to go someplace because he's upset if I'm displeasing. Are you questioning if you have displeased the Almighty? Aren't we just like that? How many times do we begin an apology with, I'm sorry if I have offended you. Meanwhile, the person is not talking to you, has <laughs> sent mass emails about you. It's human nature not to take responsibility. And we need to realize that we should be very, very careful when we insist on our own way before God. I mean, it's a scary thing. The angel tells Balaam, no, 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 don't go back. No, you go right ahead. Go right ahead. But you're going to say exactly what I'm going to tell you to say. I don't know what Balaam's thinking here. I don't know whether he negotiated them to come back twice because he wanted more money, more power. I, I'm not quite sure why he's going. When the Almighty can use a donkey to stop him and can talk through the donkey. But I suppose if God can talk through a donkey, he can definitely talk through Balaam and he can definitely talk through you and me. So the prophet arrives and is met by the king. The king is upset. What took you so long? I mean, these people are eating and drinking and do no, who knows what to the space. I mean, don't you realize that I can shower you with honors and riches? But Balaam has an attitude. I'm here, aren't I? Okay, and I'm, I can only say what God tells me to say. But Balaam is, but the king is happy. It's okay, it's okay. So he goes and he makes some sacrifices and he sends the meat to celebrate the safe arrival of these people to Balaam and his group, the elders who've been traveling. And so they all have a good night sleep. And in the morning, Balaam is found by the king and the king takes him to a high place of Baal where they used to worship their gods. And there they're able to see a portion of the Jews encampment all around and it was vast. I think we have a picture of that. This is how they were. They were separated tribe by tribe, and in the middle was a tabernacle where God was. Okay, And this is where they were in Moab. 
and the king is beside himself. So Balaam says, okay, this is what we do. I got it, I got it. Build seven altars, okay? And then sacrifice seven bulls and seven rams on each altar for a sacrifice. And then just, just stay here, and I'm going to go a little way, and I'm going to talk to the Lord Almighty, and I'm going to find out what he has to say, and I'll come back. So he does. And the king is very patient, sitting there, waiting. Balaam comes back, and, 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 the, and the king says, uh-huh, and... and We do very similar things. We go and pray to God for his protection, his blessing, in the midst of our rebelliousness. Perhaps we put an extra large check in the offering plate to prove to ourselves that we're still on the right track. We choose a wrong job, a wrong spouse, and then we ask God, would you bless it? Well, this is what Balaam tells God. While the king is over here, he goes and tells God, I have set up seven altars for you, and there's sacrifices. There's rams and bulls on each altar. Balaam is trying to, what, buy God? Does he not realize that the God Almighty prefers obedience to sacrifices? So what does God do? He takes over Balaam's voice. He returns to king, who's patiently waiting for the curses to pour out of Balaam's mouth. And instead, Balaam begins to bless the people of Israel. Behold, a people who dwell apart and shall not be reckoned among the nations. How can I curse whom God has not cursed or denounce whom God has not denounced? And he goes on and on and on. And Balaam, king, can't believe his ears. He says in Numbers 23, what have you done to me? I told you to curse my enemies, but behold, you have actually blessed them. He replied, Prophet, must I not be careful to speak what the Lord puts in my mouth? This man is a very interesting man, huh? But the king is desperate. He wants these people gone. So he takes Balaam the prophet to another vantage point, a place where only the extreme end of the encampment can be seen. Perhaps Balaam will be able to curse the Jews from there. And again, they do the same thing. The prophet gives them instructions, seven altars, bulls and rams on each altar. And he tells the king, stay here, and I'm going to talk to God. Okay, uh, he's going to speak to me. I mean, what do you think of Balaam's tenacity? Crazy, right? He's wrestling with the God Almighty who controls all, and he still wants what he wants. So for the second time, the king sees the prophet and asks Balaam what the Lord has said. And Balaam begins, Behold, I've received a command to bless. When he is blessed, I cannot revoke it. There is no omen against Jacob, nor is there any divination against Israel. Frustrated, the king tells Balaam, stop cursing them and stop blessing them. But he doesn't want to give up because there they are, a huge amount of people. So for the last time, he takes us to another vantage point. It's the third time around. And again, Balaam tells the king, do all this, seven rams. And this time, the prophet doesn't even bother to go find God. Okay? He doesn't even bother. He's so upset. So he turns his face towards the encampment. And he sees the tribes and the spirit of the Lord comes upon him and he begins to bless Israel for the third time. How fair are your tents, O Jacob. 
your dwellings, O Israel, like valleys that stretch out, like gardens beside the river, like alloys planted by the Lord. Blessed is anyone who blesses you and cursed is everyone who curses you. I mean, forget it. Numbers 24.10. Okay, now the king has, has had it. His anger burns against Balaam, and he struck his hands together, and Balak said to Balaam, I called you to curse my enemies, but behold, you have persisted in blessing them these three times. And Balaam says to him, you know, I told you I could only say what, what he tells me to say. And the prophet finished telling the king all these things that the Jews are going to end up doing to the Moabites, and he leaves. But, you know, that's not the end of our story with this prophet who insists on doing things his own way and God is not allowing him. You would think that he would be afraid of this God. Wouldn't you be afraid of this God? Who takes over your mouth, who takes over donkeys, who, who, I, wouldn't you be afraid? But no, he's not afraid. We talk about choosing, choosing life versus choosing death. And instead, this is what he does. The next chapter, the beginning of the chapter, it says in scripture that the Jews, the men, started playing the harlot with the daughters of Moab. The Moabites invite the Jews to the sacrifices to their gods, and the Jews ate and bowed down to Baal, the god of the Moabites. You see, there's two ways to skin a cat. And that's how Balaam decided to do it. He wanted the money. He wanted the prestige. So if God is not going to let him curse, well, there's other ways to do it. He told the king, just, just tempt them with your beautiful women, with your wonderful meats. These people have had manna, and once in a while they have birds flying down. I mean, they would love to eat meat, barbecued ribs. Do we notice that even though God protects the Jews, from being cursed by a greedy prophet, he does not stop the Jews from sinning. That's interesting, isn't it? It's a scary thing, actually. We are not God's robots. Why? Because he wants us to choose. To choose. Do you know that choosing the wrong path, you might think, is not a big deal? But it's a big deal. This silly prophet became so dangerous. What he did, the advice he gave to the king, cost the Jews 24,000 lives because they were punished for what happened. Revelations 2.14 says, I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam who keep teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. Perhaps Balaam yearned for the riches and honor of advising the king, so he advised the king how to undermine the Jews in another way. Weren't the Jews like other men? They could be tempted. Numbers 31.8 tells us that in time, in time, Israel ended up by taking full vengeance on the Midianites, not the Moabites, but the Midianites who were their allies. And Balaam was killed with them. It's a strange and tragic story. And what I want us to get from this is this. Do we know who God is? Do you understand who God is? God is the one who gives you life. God is the one who takes life. 
Every good thing you have in your life comes from God. Every good thing. But we must be humble. We must realize it and accept it. Because there's a war raging around us for our souls. And we don't understand it. We think we're simply making a bad choice. But it's not just a bad choice. We're choosing death versus life. Deuteronomy 13:19 says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants. So this morning, think about it. Think about it. Are you choosing a path that is sure for destruction? Or are you choosing life? You just walk into it, one day at a time, with God being your GPS, your navigation. Because without him, we're lost.